All right, y'all. It's good to see everybody. There we go. Give me some. Glad you're here. A little rowdy tonight. What's going on? All right, we're going to jump back into our study of Philemon. Um, So if you want to look at the whole book of Philemon or the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a man who lived in Colossae, you can pull that pew Bible out. That's found right between Titus and Hebrews. When you think about all the New Testament books that Paul wrote and how lengthy they are, then you come to Philemon. It's the, uh, so I consider Philemon to be it's the first century equivalent of Paul's tweet. That's the book of Philemon. This is a little 24, 25 verses. But there's a lot packed in there. So let's pray, and then we'll see what God has to say to us tonight, okay? Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've granted us. As always, we recognize your providence in these moments. We pray, Father, that you'll use this for your glory in our lives. We desire to hear from you tonight. Help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear. Lord, conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Protect us from the temptation that we have to uh, just fall prey to worldly distractions or God whatever it is that may be uh, trying to hinder us from receiving from you that which you'd like to give us Lord we thank you for this good word that you've given us and Lord we pray now that you'd use it for your glory honor and praise in Jesus name amen and protect whoever's being murdered outside those doors Clearly, there should be some security dispatched to that area. Amen. Okay, now let's let's uh, think this through, okay? I and mean, I hope you didn't miss last week, but if you did, you have to go back and listen to it because I don't have time to go through setting the stage for all this. But this is a, a very short letter, but there's a lot going on here, and we have to be careful that we don't get lost in words. And that we have to realize that these are words that represent people, that that feel emotions that are in these personal struggles and situations. So if, if if the letter of Philemon was made into a movie, it would just be a lot easier for us to connect with it. I mean, you imagine this scene where you have that you have this uh, this man named Philemon who lives in Colossae, who is uh, evidently a, a successful businessman, whatever his family endeavor is, he's successful at that because we know two things about him. We know that he was wealthy enough to, to own slaves, and I addressed the issue of slavery in the Bible last week. He's wealthy enough to own slaves, and number two, he is wealthy enough to have a big enough house that the church in Colossae meets at his house. So that tells us a little bit about him, right? So that, that's the opening scene. And then you have Onesimus, this uh, slave who don't think uh, American 
slavery. This is first century slavery, completely different, uh, equally wrong, but just completely different. We don't know the scenario by which Onesimus became a slave. We also don't know the scenario by which he decided he no longer wanted to be a slave. And a lot of people take a lot of liberty when they're talking about Philemon and start adding all these details to try to paint this picture, which I don't think the Bible gives us liberty to. This is what I believe the Bible's telling us. Number one, we don't know why why, uh, Onesimus decided he no longer wanted to be in the household of Philemon. And here's the reason we don't know. God didn't tell us, and when God doesn't tell us something, that's because we don't need to know. It's, it's not relevant information. So I, if I read another commentary that talks about uh, Onesimus stealing a bunch of stuff from Philemon's house and then leaving, I'm going to scream because we don't know that's the case. Well, yeah, there, there could be a thousand reasons. We don't know if he was a slave because of uh, some... Uh, he was because of some debt that his family had amassed that couldn't be paid or that he had amassed that needed to be paid, or if he was a slave by choice. See, if you were poor and, and struggling and starving, you could go to somebody who was wealthy and successful in the first century, and you could come work for them as a slave, and you could uh, you would be fed. You would, you know, just it just depends on the situation. It could be all sorts of different things. And the point is, is that we don't know. But here's what we know: at some point, for some reason, Onesimus no longer wanted to be a slave, which he didn't have the legal right to do. So he flees. So if, for example, he was a a slave because of a debt that he owed, well then now Philemon just has to incur that debt. So whatever the case may be, he leaves. So now this, this would be punishable by death. This, this had severe consequences of running away. He runs away and he goes 1,500 miles, he ends up, to Rome, the largest city that he could have possibly reached. I mean, this is the largest city in the Roman Empire. So he, he gets to Rome, hustling and bustling. If you're going to hide, that's the place to hide. So imagine the scene now. You have him, you know, walking down the bustling streets of Rome. We don't know how long he was in Rome. We don't know what he was doing while he was in Rome, but he was doing something, and time was passing. And through that time that he was there, he ended up getting connected. Either he met some Christians, or maybe he met the Apostle Paul somehow. Paul is there. Paul is on house arrest. We don't even know if he met Paul before he was on house arrest or during the time he was on house arrest. We just know that by the providence of God, through all of these hundreds of thousands of people, this one particular man ends up crossing paths with the Apostle Paul This runaway slave becomes a Christian. God saves him. His life is turned upside down. And he becomes not just a Christian, but a productive Christian. He is so productive that he, he, Paul, by the time he writes this letter, has grown very fond of this man. 
And he's evidently active in the church. He's active there. He's active in the ministry. He assists Paul, assists other people. He's very helpful. So he's this young, wonderful, encouraging believer that everybody is excited about the work that God's doing in his life. And somewhere along the line, imagine now, he comes to Paul one day, just like the story I told you last week from my own family. He comes to the Apostle Paul and he says, listen, I have a confession to make. I've been hiding something from you. I'm actually a fugitive and I ran away and I was a, I was a slave and I ran away and I'm here because I'm hiding. And you can imagine Paul's face at that moment like, what? And then imagine the conversation as him and Paul begin to talk and Paul says, now, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm from a little place called Colossae. And Paul says, well, I've been there. I I know that place. And then he says, well, that's where I'm from. That's where I, you know, grew up, whatever, whatever. And in the course of this conversation, Onesimus no doubt says, well, when I ran away from Philemon, and Paul said, what? Who? you ran away from Philemon? And he said, yes. And he goes, I know him very well. Paul, no doubt, led him to Christ and so much so had built such a strong bond with him that when Paul left, he left the church meeting at his house. Many scholars believe that Philemon's son was the pastor of the church. Maybe even Philemon was the previous pastor. We don't know. But we know they knew each other. So there's this aha moment where Paul says, wait a second. You mean to tell me that you ran away from the person I left in charge of the church at Colossae, you came 1,500 miles to the biggest city on the planet, meet me, become a Christian, we become close, and then you confess to me this person that I know very, very well is the one you're on the run from that you've wronged. You can't make this up. I mean, this is just crazy details. And so, understand, Paul knows, um, he knows the, the consequences of, of what Onesimus has done. Onesimus certainly knows. And then Paul says, well, you, you have to do the right thing. The same thing my father-in-law told that deacon in his church. The only difference is Paul couldn't go with him because he was on house arrest. So he said, you got to go back. you got to turn yourself in and you gotta, you got to throw yourself on the mercy of the gospel. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a letter on your behalf and I'm going to send you back. Because I'm already, get this, writing a letter to Colossae that I'm already sending anyway. So I'm just going to send you with that letter and your letter back. 
Now, now think about this. Imagine you're Onesimus. You, who knows what he was thinking Paul was going to say? But it doesn't matter. Paul said that now he's facing a death sentence. So Paul gives him a letter and sends him on his way. So he has to travel 1,500 miles. That's a long way. It takes a long time. It gives you a lot of time to think. At any time, at any time, he could have just ripped the letter up and disappeared. But he didn't. This is the character of the people that are in this story. I mean, Onesimus is a remarkable human being. He is a remarkable human being. Paul's discipleship of Onesimus, to me, is just stellar in this story because he followed through. He did what Paul told him he needed to do. He believed. I don't believe he believed the gospel such that he knew that Philemon would forgive him. I think he believed the gospel such that he was going to do right no matter what the consequences would have been. Now, if you're wondering what happened, well, because we don't know. All we know is the, what was written and what was handed to Philemon. But obviously, it worked out or it wouldn't be in the Bible. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, that reconciliation uh, happened exactly the way it was supposed to and exactly the way uh, everything was set up to because every single thing has been uh, laid in place for that to happen. But here's the thing. Just think of, the, the, think of these people and this stress and what has, you know, the, in this culture, we can't understand this, but in this culture, there would have been great shame to Philemon. You know, all the people that knew him, they knew what happened, that he left. And then, and it's not just the fact that he left, it's the fact that he left, that he got away, the fact that, or, that he left you. You, are you, were you, are you. Were you bad to him? Were you mistreating him? Were you, I mean, it was, just, it was just negative in every possible way. It was negative. And so there's, there's great tension in these relationships, Okay. And so I want you to think now about, well, why is this in the Bible? And why does God want us to, to know this, this little story about these unique little details in the middle of nowhere that don't seem on the surface to have a whole lot to do with the gospel? They have everything to do with the gospel. And here's why. Because first and foremost, all of us know the pain of divided relationships. See, we all have been in situations and circumstances. We all have firsthand knowledge of broken relationships, hurt feelings, severed friendships, or whatever the case may be. I mean, it could be anything simple from the, the, the roommate that eats all your food, and then you come home hungry and open the fridge and your food's not there. And you've got this annoying person that is rude that you live with that eats your stuff. 
and then thinks that saying I'm sorry is I'm not channeling Tony in college because Tony's fridge never had food in it. I was the annoying person that ate everyone else's food. But it could, but still, it caused fracture. It caused frustration. Or the friendship that for so long went so well. And then you find yourself in a situation where you're erasing their name from your phone. Just a moment that there was a time in the past that you couldn't ever imagine that being, and yet it is. Some of you in the room, you know the pain of divorce. You, 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 you think about this now. I mean, you remember the euphoria of your wedding day. And yet you find yourself at this moment in the future where you visit your children on the weekends. And you have conversations about child support and alimony. You couldn't have imagined that on your wedding day. But here you are. You see, this is not something that some of us know about. We all recognize that to be human is to to know divided relationships, to, to, to have experienced broken, fractured. It's universal. And here's the thing, look, whether you grew up in a great stable family in the church every weekend, every, uh, every time the doors were open, or you grew up in a broken disaster with no framework and, and structure and no God whatsoever, everyone's experienced drama in relationships. It happens in both. And, and so you have to ask the question, well, why? Why is that so universal? It, it's irregardless of, of your economic status. It's irregardless of, of, of your geographic location. It's irregardless of your spiritual background. It doesn't matter. You can, there's no, it doesn't, it gets us all at every level. Why? You think about it. You see, Adam and Eve, they go from living in perfect harmony and relationship and fellowship with each other and God to instantaneously hiding from God and hiding from one another at the same time. Because as they're hiding from God, what happens is they sin, fracture the relationship with God. They run from God. And the next thing you know, they're no longer naked, but now they're ashamed. And now they're covering themselves. There's only two people. Has anybody ever thought about that? Like, we've spent all this time naked, and now all of a sudden, we're like this. Does that seem weird? That's what sin does. Because in the middle of sin is I. We're in the middle of it. And sin fractures relationships. And here's the thing about the way the Bible gives us a picture of sin and how it works. The Bible pictures sin not merely as a 
personal breach, which is how we oftentimes think about it. But the Bible teaches us that the effects of sin are profoundly social. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it, it was they sinned against God, but, look, but what the consequences were all social, weren't they? Well, yes. And guess what? Every time you sin, the consequences affect people around you. So it's not just, oh, I made this mistake or I did this wrong thing. And so there's a fracture between it's my personal. No, it doesn't work like that. Just like we talked about last week about personal versus private. No, there's always going to be drama in every human relationship. So whenever it comes to relationships with other people, you should count on drama because if you don't, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. And here's the thing. We we live in la-la land with regards to this. I'm not exactly sure why, why we... I mean, especially us in this room, we ought to be wise to this. Let me, let me just give you a little cue here. So when it comes to your... Those of you in the room, those of us in the room that are married, let me throw a little nugget out there for you to think about. And if you're not married and intend to be married one day, you might want to hold on to this, okay? Because no one ever says this. God intends in marriage for your spouse... To annoy you to the point of no return. Now you can take that to the bank. Now I didn't say it's going to happen. Because it's going to happen. But I said God intends. He intends. See if you think that God's intention for your marriage is for you two to be harmoniously like two little lovebirds chirping away for the, all the years of your life to go forward, you are totally missing, totally missing how spiritual transformation operates in our lives. The greatest tool of sanctification that God uses in your life is your spouse. Nothing's even close to that. And do you think there's sanctification going on when you're chirping? No. How, 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 imagine your God and his job, imagine now, switch places and imagine your God and now your job is to make you more like Christ. What's your plan? Because you know better than anybody how hard of a job that is. So what's God going to do? How is God going to teach you to deny yourself? Your spouse. Now see, if I would have started this message and said, you know, some people, some people have no conflict in their family. They, they, 
have no conflict in their marriage, they have no conflict with their children, you would have immediately all thought, well, this dude is insane. Well, why do you think that's so? Well, because the people that you live in closest proximity to are the people you're going to have the most opportunity for conflict with, and they're the ones that you are going to be most compelled to resolve So they're going to be the most sanctifying opportunities that God has to work in your life. So back to what I said, see, God's intention in your marriage is not for it to always be happy-go-lucky. And some of you are like, whew. Well, you should have already known that. I've been married 30 years. And my wife is really sanctified because she has been through it. So look, if we want to experience deep, rich, authentic relationships, we got to commit ourselves to the hard and essential work of reconciliation. If it's, a, if it's universal, there's going to be division and strife and broken relationships. And Well, then here's the thing. If we know that and we can't stop that, which we can't, then what do we need to do? We need to become experts at reconciliation. Now we're starting to get into, well, this is probably why this little jewel is in the Bible, isn't it? To help us understand all of this. Because what if we ignore reconciliation? What if, we, what if we don't determine to be... I mean, look, we're going to go... Tonight's going to be good. It's going to be smooth. It's going to be happy. But some of you stink at reconciliation. You're terrible. And the fact of the matter is, is that you, you leave a whole lot more broken relationships behind you than you do mended. And that's, that's a reflection on you, not on the people that are in your past. And so you should pay very close attention to what I'm going to say tonight. Because here's the thing, and next week and the week after that. But a life without reconciliation, it equals lonely. It equals lonely. That's why the Bible says, look, I mean, it's every workplace, every school, every club, every fraternity, every sorority, every PTA, every ball team, every boardroom. It doesn't matter. Whatever you, it doesn't matter where you go and what you do. Guess what? You're going to end up in conflict. But the Bible says, in Romans 12, 18, well, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. See, now, why doesn't God say, well, just live peaceably with all men? Well, obviously. But as much as it depends on you. Because there are situations where if, if the gospel is only on one side of the equation, it can be impossible quite frankly. The only place that it's 100% always 
uh, a possibility for reconciliation is when, when the gospel's at the center of the relationship. If you've got two believers, then there should always be reconciliation. So as much as it depends on you, as much as it depends on you, because the, the church has the ultimate nuclear weapon of reconciliation, which is the gospel. And that's what's on display in this little letter called Philemon. So if you think about the way the Bible not only talks about reconciliation, which we've dealt with in depth through both 1st and 2nd Corinthians on Sunday mornings, but if you just think about the way the Bible deals with conflict in general and even conflict in the New Testament, think about how Jesus dealt with conflict amongst believers, for example. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 24, Jesus said, don't even worship. Don't worship. If someone has ought against you, get up from the altar and go resolve it. Don't worship me in that state. Think about that. So, the fact that there's conflict in every church, that's not surprising. Well, because that's obvious. The shocker is when there's unresolved conflict in God's church and amongst God's people. Now, granted, not everybody in the church is a Christian, but it's shocking when there's two professing believers and no reconciliation. All right, so with that in mind, let's look at what Paul prays beginning in verse 4. He's sending this letter with Onesimus, and he's, he's writing this prayer to Philemon, who, look, if Paul has just went through this shocking moment of, you know, trying to put, like, realizing how all these pieces are put together, he's also realizing that Philemon, the, on the other end of this, the first, you got to remember something. We're talking about a hand-carried letter. So what does this mean? This means, look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure stuff out. Just think about it. This isn't an email. This means that Philemon is going to see Onesimus physically before he reads the letter. So there is a great deal of tension. And the closer Onesimus gets to Colossae, the more his blood pressure and his anxiety gets up and he's carrying this letter. And so I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us. I'm just imagining in my mind, when I imagine the scenario, I imagine Onesimus walking up to Philemon, holding the letter like this, going, before you say anything, attack me, hit me, have me arrested, whatever, you know, read this. And I don't know that Onesimus knows what the letter says because Paul would have had to let him do that because it would have been customary for this letter to have been sealed. 
Because obviously there had to be proof that the letter was actually from the Apostle Paul that he didn't understand. So this would have been sealed with some sort of stamp. So, so he doesn't know what it says. That, I'm just painting a picture of the amazing gospel faith of this runaway slave. When I get to heaven, I want to meet Onesimus. Because he, to me, exhibits remarkable character and faith in God. So here's what Paul says, verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see what's evident is how well, last week we saw how much Paul loved Onesimus by what he said. Now this week we see how much history Paul has with Philemon. See, Paul is very familiar with this person over a long period of time and has watched how God has used him because of the things, the specific things he says in his prayer. He's not just praying some, you know, remote prayer that he prays all the time that you could just pray about anybody. He clearly knows intimately, he knows Philemon. And here's the thing about prayers. They reveal our priorities. I mean, over all these decades of shepherding people, I've heard a lot of prayers and I've heard a lot of people pray. And I can tell a lot about a person by how they pray. Especially... If I pray or if I hear that person pray multiple times because it tells you things. You can tell. See, here's what I can tell about Paul's prayer. Is that Paul wants to say the right thing in the right way for the right reason with the goal of getting the right response. Paul clearly prays a prayer that is indicative of a heart that wants what God wants. He wants what will honor God in every way. And so he prays according to that way. You see, if you, if every time you pray, you pray the same prayer, It sounds the same. You say the same thing. It says a lot about you. It says a lot about you. Paul could not have prayed this prayer about very many people. If you you knew Paul, if you were a close friend of Paul's, you could have heard the prayer and probably guessed 
within one, two, three names who he was praying about. You'd, because you can tell by what he says. It's very personal. It's very, it's very informative. It's very, it, it tells you about him. You think about prayer and you think about how so many people today pray. I feel like it's important to say a few things. Like, first of all, prayer is not for just for emergency situations. See, Paul teaches us that in this, in this prayer right here. See, Paul could have said, I'm, I'm praying for you because of this big situation that, we're, you're about to, that you just found out about. But notice what Paul says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul has been praying for the church at Colossae and for Philemon way before Onesimus came into the picture. That's important for you to understand. You know, I'm not, obviously, when there's a crisis situation, the first thing you ought to do is pray. But if the only time you pray is when there's a crisis situation, it's clear what your priorities are. Which then leads me to the second thing, which is the heart of prayer is not is the agenda of God, not us. See, if you only pray in a crisis situation, you don't understand prayer. Your agenda is you. See, Paul's praying for the... Why is Paul praying for the church at Colossae? He's nowhere near Colossae. He's focused on what he's doing in Rome. But he's still continually praying for this church, not because it has anything to do with him, but because it has something to do with the glory of God. You see? Like, what do you continually pray for that doesn't have anything to do with you? My gosh, I sure hope something comes to your mind. Because it's sad if it doesn't. Just be a great indicator as to why you need to go on a mission trip now. So that your heart gets broken for people that don't have anything to do with you. Which is good for you to realize and understand. We we can't just pray for things that have to do with us. That is as pathetic as what it is. See, Paul teaches us what, what should be true for all of us. He finds genuine joy in God's work through others. He commends Philemon for all the great things that God's doing through him that don't have anything to do with Paul. He's just happy that God's kingdom is being advanced. Look at what he says. He says, because I hear of your faith... I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So the love that you have for the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord and how these two things, these outside bookends go together and the inside bookends go together and how they connect together to teach us something. We have faith in Christ 
and love for others simultaneously propelling the, the work of God forward amongst a group of people or through an individual. So if God is working through you, which he wants to, but if he is, if your life is actively producing fruit in the kingdom of God, then here's what I know. I automatically know that two things are evident. Faith in Jesus and love for people. Because those two things cannot be separated or missing or absent. They absolutely cannot. See, when it comes to faith in Jesus and love for others, both must be present for either to be real. See, if you're not loving other people, you don't have faith in God. I mean, I can't say it any more bluntly than John does in 1 John 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Those two things must always be present in order for the gospel to advance through you. If you want God to use you, understand that he's going to use you through your faith and your love, those two things, they're going to be evident. They're going to be seen. And so that's what Paul points out that is being seen in the life of Philemon. Now look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. What a, it's a, such a fascinating verse. I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, he's not talking about personal evangelism, although it could be. He's not not talking about that. It's just that when we hear the phrase sharing of your faith, we automatically think that that's, you know, sharing the faith with somebody. But that, no, no, that this is much more inclusive than that. The language of verse 6 is very complex, but what you need to understand is he's talking about a whole lot more than telling other people about Jesus. He's talking about that, but a whole lot more as well. See, if you study the prayers in the Bible, look at, look at the Look at all of the prayers in the New Testament and you'll be amazed at what you find. Or maybe you'll be amazed at what you don't find. And, and hopefully what would happen is if you did that, you would, you would begin to, uh, it, would begin, it would have a profound effect on the way that you pray. See, because I could spend weeks teaching you about the need to pray and the opportunity that you have to pray and what God did in order to, to make available the prayer and the power of prayer and all these things. I could teach you all these things about prayer. But if you didn't understand the way the New Testament prays, then you'd still end up doing what most people do, which is not pray the way the New Testament prays. Go home and look in your New Testament, for example. This is just one. I could give you 50 examples. This is just one. Go home and look in your New Testament and find where 
there's a prayer for physical healing. Find that. Find where Jesus taught pray for them to be healed. Or somebody or group of disciples or a group of Jesus followers got together and they were praying for somebody to be healed of some physical ailment. Now, what is the vast majority of what the church prays for when they get together? I mean, if, if we were in a prayer meeting, it would be somebody's bunion and somebody's sore back and somebody's this and somebody's that. And it'd be this long list of all, or your community group has a long list of everybody's ailments. Now, am I, am I telling you you shouldn't pray for people's physical healing? Of course I'm not. Of course I'm not. But here's what I am telling you. How did you get to only pray for physical healing? How in the world could you be in a room full of believers? If it's just your D group, if it's just four people, you're telling me that these four individuals striving to follow Jesus in a dark and broken world, they're greatest needs are all physical healing? You are insane. That's not true. What about all the the spiritual consequences of what's going on in those individual lives? How could you possibly walk away with a list of physical needs? You're telling me that that spiritually everyone is just crushing it and, and, and producing fruit a thousandfold and flourishing and, and advancing the kingdom. and all. No. But yet we've walked away with a list of nothing but ailments. You see what I mean? And that's just why I could give you 50. We could just start down the list of what the common group of Christian people get together and pray about and just ching, 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 go down the list. And think about it. What is Paul saying in verse 6? Here's what you consistently find in the New Testament. This isn't just Paul. This is when Jesus teaches prayer. This is all the prayer. And I'm not saying that the New Testament, what the New Testament model is, is that the Old Testament doesn't. Of course, it's all God's Word. And there's tons of Psalms. Well, not tons, but there's uh, multiple Psalms for physical healing, obviously. But what I'm saying is that if if I were trying to gain a context of how to pray as a spirit-filled new covenant believer, wouldn't I first look at the prayers in the new covenant? Wouldn't I do that? Wouldn't I look at the example left by my Savior and by those that he spoke through? Wouldn't I do that? I'm pretty sure that's what I would do. I'm pretty sure that's what I would do. And this is what you find prayers like verse 6. That the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul, in that sentence, he, he wants us to grow as we participate in our faith. 
That's what the sharing of the faith is. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the intersection of koinonia and sanctification. The the Greek word in verse 6 is koinonia, which is is the, the, the sacrificial supernatural fellowship that's experienced in spirit-filled believers when they come together in the name of Christ and around the gospel. Not when you sit around and drink coffee, and it can happen when you sit around and drink coffee, but not if you're just blah, 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 blah. But when you're engaging around the gospel in the power of the Spirit within you with other believers, this magical, beautiful, supernatural thing called koinonia. He's, he wants us just like he's, he wants Philemon, just like he wants Onesimus, and just like he wants all the people in the church at Colossae, he wants all the people in this church to, to grow as we participate in our faith. So this is what I want you to do. I'm going to, I'm going to show you a very simple way to understand this sanctification wheel or the sanctification grid. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm not the smartest person in this room. So, but I'm really good at dumbing things down so I can get it, so I can help you. So, you know, that's why really smart people typically go to church somewhere else. Sorry, not sorry. All right. So what you should do is you should, hey, Listen, when I'm getting on your case, just remember, you're just a reflection of me. Okay? I mean, let's face it. All right. So we're in this together. All right? So draw an arrow from one to the next to the next. So the first one is this. We're meant to grow. Not not earth-shattering new news, right? We can all just agree that every Christian is intended by God to grow, right? Okay, so then we draw a little arrow. Now, if we're intended to grow, the question is, well, what does that look like? Or what do we, in, in the context of verse 6, we're sharing in the faith together, right? So how is this going to happen? Well, we're meant to grow, so then we should grow, which means as we grow, we're meant to grow, so we're going to grow. Because if you, if I don't want to use a bunch of words and confuse you, but sanctification is us growing in a, as a Christian, growing in the likeness of Christ. Well, here's the deal. You can either, you can participate with sanctification, or you can fight against sanctification, but you're getting sanctified either one way or the other. If you're saved, God's sanctifying you. Now, he might put you in prison or death row or in ICU or whatever he has to do, but he's going to sanctify you. And if you don't understand that, Jonah, then just go read that book and you'll figure it out. Because if you decide you don't want to grow, you might end up in the belly of a whale. Which is why if I've called you Jonah before, then now you know why I called you that. I was just trying to use a word picture to get you to understand what I'm trying to say. Right? So as we grow what? We're meant to share our growth with others. 
See, we are meant to grow, but we're not meant to grow for ourselves. This is very important. This is super, super simple elementary kindergarten. But if you don't get this, it's going to mess you up. You're meant to grow. So as you grow, that growth is meant to be shared with other people. Okay? Then you draw another arrow to the third part. So when we share our growth with others, what happens when we share our growth with others? We grow. Not they grow. Yes, they grow, but that's not the point. The point is you. So now you can go home and deconstruct that and you can ask yourself this question. Am I growing? And if the answer is no, maybe you can start figuring it out. Why am I not growing? You're being sanctified, but there's a problem. The sanctification is not leading to, it's not producing what it's supposed to be producing, which means there's a, there's a disconnect. So there's a, there's a, all right, so, so let's take this to, let's make a, let's make a real life modern application with this. Just in case you're not going to con- make, connect all the dots, let me connect them all for you. We live in a culture where people come to church, faithfully come to church, even this one. Faithfully come to church only to receive. Now, you want me to read your mail real quick? Because here's how you can instantly know if that's you or not. Because the rest of us know. Trust me. I don't need to check a list. I don't need to look at a list of who's serving where to find it. I don't, it's a rare occasion that I have to walk in to the secretary's office and say, hey, where does so-and-so serve? That almost never happens. Think of the hundreds of people serving around here. That almost never happens. Because I don't need to know where you serve. I know that you serve. I know that you don't come here just to receive because of this truth right here. When you come to church just to get, you're 100% of the time going to end up in a spiritual coma. Now, that's an amazing thing because what happens is at first, you started coming to church. And when you first start coming to church, okay, when I first started coming to church, let's just talk about me. When I first started coming to church, I started sitting there listening to sermons and going to small group and listening, and I was growing like crazy. And I was just getting, 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 getting. But I started with zero. So I ain't got nothing to give. So I'm getting. But here's what happens. You start getting, and then there's a moment when the faucet turns off. Whoop. See, God knows. And you know what? Freebie season's over. It's over. 
You can sit there for the rest of your life. You can listen. You can study all my sermons. You can go back and listen to them online. You can do all the Bible studies you want to. You can, you're in a coma. You ain't growing. All you're doing is packing your head with knowledge. That's all you're doing. You're not producing fruit. I'm just telling you. It doesn't work. You're violating a very basic principle of spiritual growth. You think you can grow and not share your growth. You're just wrong. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. You're trying to go against gravity. It just doesn't work. Now, I've seen... I've seen this, I've seen so many, I don't have time to go into all the complexity, but let me tell you something. I've seen God do supernatural miracles within that principle many times. I've seen people that looked to me like they were, that I could tell were in a spiritual coma. I mean, I'm talking about they're here all the time, Wednesday night people. But you're only here to receive. You don't do anything. You don't help. You don't serve. You don't give. It's just you. Or you just, you know, give a little bit to feel better and that's it. And that's the only time we see you is when we got something to offer you. That's the only time we see you. Okay? So here's the thing. You're in a coma. I've seen God lift the coma from people. For various reasons. I've seen people get physically incapacitated. I don't believe God did that as any kind of uh, punishment or any kind of thing. The, they got physically incapacitated to the point where they couldn't help. And then you know what happened? In their physical limitation, like they had all this time, they could have been such a blessing to so many people and they weren't. And now all of a sudden they can't be a blessing to anybody, barely even themselves. And they suddenly try to do whatever little bit they can and the coma's lifted and they start growing again like this. Haven't you seen that, Frank? Haven't you seen that, Wade? You hang around here. Look, matter of fact, I'm pretty sure the guy sitting right behind you, Wade, is a living proof of that right now. Living proof of that. So see, listen, because brother, when, when, when you come down here and kneel at the altar and it takes you 10 minutes to get up, let me tell you something. There's nothing around here that encourages me more than that right there. That right there. That's how this works. That's how this works. So here's the principle. Knowledge without action is useless. Now see, when I say it that way, everybody gets it. But, but what, I, what do I mean by action? I don't mean knowledge that you're putting into action in your own life. I'm talking about knowledge that you have that's benefiting other people. That the outflow of that knowledge creates you in some form of servitude, in some form of being a blessing to, in some form of that's what, that's what it means. That's what James is talking about. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Coma. There's a lot of dead people 
that are super faithful church attenders, but they're dead. They're dead. They're in a coma. See, Paul prays for them to have full knowledge. Full knowledge. What does that mean? To have full knowledge of something. To have full, he didn't say to have knowledge of something. To have full knowledge of something, you got to have two things. You got to possess it and you got to perform it. See, you can read every book about something. You could read every book that was ever written about flying a hot air balloon. You could, you could write papers about it. You could scientifically study it. You could do a dissertation on it. But if you never flew a hot air balloon, you don't have full knowledge. Right? Okay. So we all agree full knowledge is possessing and performing. If you grow and that growth isn't shared, you ain't going to be growing for long. You're not. So the way it works out in our lives is as we understand, we act. Like that's what, that's what it should say. That's what we all should want on our tombstone. Here lies Tony. As he understood, he did. As God gave insight, he moved on that. As God, whatever God gave him possession of, he used all of his strength, effort, and everything he had to perform it. However you want to work it. That, you couldn't say anything better about somebody than that. But what we have most of the time is here lies so-and-so, and he had tons of head knowledge. And it's all in the ground with him. Gone. And quite frankly, when he departed this world, the only thing that changed in the church he was a faithful member of for all those years is that the spot he sat in is now available. It's all that changed. Think about it. you understand and you act. See, you, you, here's a simple illustration. You understand, what do, you, do you understand the reality of hell? Do you understand what happens to a person who dies without the gospel? If you, if you depart this life without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, do you understand the eternal consequences of that? To which I'm pretty sure everyone in the room has a head knowledge to say, yes, I do. Okay, then do you understand that one of the single biggest opportunities for you to invite somebody to church is in just a couple weeks from now? So you have this understanding about the gospel and, and the reality of hell and the consequences. You have a cultural understanding of most people go to church on Easter. Now, how many people are you going to invite to come to church on Easter? Are you going to act on this information or are you just going to, it's just going to be information in your head? There's my point right there. Like how could it be, how could it be conceivable that you would even, there would even be a possibility that you would walk through those doors on Easter Sunday and sit in this service having not invited a single person to be there with you? How could that be biblically 
conceivable. And yet, what would the percentage be? I don't even want to know. I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I thought about it. See, he prays, become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. See that? Now, right now would be a perfect time for me to go on a tangent from Sunday morning and talk about the full knowledge of every good thing and how that would affect the narrative or the soundtrack in your mind and your thoughts. But you can just think about that on your own. But look at how all that connects together. And so what happens when we become effective in the full knowledge? See, notice, what if he would have said, I just pray that you, that you gain the full knowledge? That would have been different. He didn't pray that. He prayed that you become effective in the full knowledge. What is the result of becoming effective in the knowledge that you have? Now, now you're never going to come to a point in your life where you're, you're not learning. We're always going to learn so long as we're alive in this life. We're learning. We're constantly learning. I'm constantly learning. You're constantly learning. We're all constantly learning. You're never going to run out of things to learn. About God. But as we're, as we're learning things, as, as, our, as our knowledge is growing, as our faith is growing, as we're sharing that growth with other people, if we are effective in what we know, if you became effective tonight in the information that you currently possess right now, Which again, side note, this is why the New Testament, every time this issue comes up about stepping out in faith beyond your knowledge, the Bible always goes this extra mile to say, don't worry, just be obedient. I'll give you the words you need when you need them. Because you never, ever, ever resist action for lack of knowledge. You, that's human wisdom. That's what you do at work. See, if you want to be successful at work, you better restrict action for lack of knowledge or you are going to be hunting a job very soon. If you start taking actions that you don't have knowledge on, literally, you won't have a job for a week. It doesn't even matter what your job is. Because your job, every job is predicated on correct action based on knowledge. But the gospel is not like your job. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so action can precede knowledge all day long. All day long. Because you have the full bank of knowledge resources with you all the time. See, if you didn't have the Spirit of God with you, then the only time you could let action precede knowledge would be when you were in the temple of God and around the Spirit of God. But look at how God's rigged the system. You got the personable, personal, portable model built into you 
at salvation so that everywhere you go and everything you need, the resources right there, all you got to do is access it. But here's the key. How do you access it? You can't access it for the wrong purpose. You can't say, God, if you tell me, I'll step. And he goes, nope, sorry, doesn't work that way. When you step, the voice speaks. When you step, suddenly it comes. When you step, that's how it works. That's how God designed it. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that God has designed this whole issue. Look, we're, we're literally, look at the conversation we're having. And yet it seems like we're a million miles away from this, these two people that are, have this huge problem that they're about to reconcile. And yet, no, we're not. No, we're not. This is just another day in the life of the gospel between two people. This could be your day, my day. This could be your today. This could be your tomorrow. This could be anything. This is how the gospel works. This is why you should pray according to the way the, the gospel teaches you to pray. You should pray. You should pray that, that people around you, that people would, that people that you care about. Listen, because what, what is the, like, let's go back to my Easter illustration. You got all this knowledge, and are you going to act? Well, well if you, let's say that, that you, you have this knowledge and you start to carry this burden, so either between or post, it doesn't matter, before or after or both, you pray about the action. You pray about the action that you're going to take and you ask God to bless it and use it and, and give you the words or whatever you want to do. And after you do it, you pray, God, I hope that that's effective. I hope that you... But here's the thing. What is your main concern? Is your main concern the eternal destination of the soul that you talk to or are your prayers centered around God using you specifically to be the one? You see, because if you're only praying for God to use you, you're not effective in the full knowledge. How are you making someone's eternity about you? Do, do you want God to use you? Sure. But have you forgotten the fact that that person sees hundreds of other people every single day besides you, any of whom may be followers of Jesus, any of whom God may use? Don't you see what I'm trying to get you to see is back up a minute. Get off the telephoto lens and get the wide-angle lens out and let's look around and see what God's doing. It doesn't matter who God uses. What matters is the soul of that person. And so we pray, God, save them. Give me the words. Give me the opportunity. Use anybody. I pray the mailman. See, that when I'm praying for lost, I mean, literally, it's not right. I think... All I have to do is close my eyes and imagine this person. I go, well, you know what? They have a mailman. So I pray for the mailman. They have a neighbor. So I pray for the neighbor. 
I know that, they, that somebody checks them out in stores, so I pray for that person. I pray for the person that they go into the bank, or, 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 the, or I pray for the person that serves them their food in a restaurant. See, because they're the same as you. You don't even have to know them to know that, right? Yes, so why aren't you praying for all those people? Because. You, you, you see what I mean? We, it's so easy. We just get trapped in this thing where it's just me, 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 me. It's all about me. And pretty soon, my whole life only revolves around me and people connected to me. That's not, that's not gospel. That's not how this, that's not, no, that's wrong. Your growth, what you're hearing right now come out of my mouth is 100% intended by God for you to put into action for the benefit of other people. This is not, I'm not teaching you anything for you to hold on to. Because if you store this up like manna, it will rot. It'll rot. It'll be sweet today, but it'll, it'll start stinking if you don't share it. See? So what's the result of all this? Verse 7, for, for I have, he says, derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Man. I mean, as enamored as I am with the person of Onesimus, we have to say Philemon is, is an extraordinary human being too, to have this said about him. So I didn't put this in your notes, but I'll give you a couple takeaways before I, I'm already 10 miles late anyway. So just circle some things, okay? Some takeaways from verse 7 is circle the word joy. You, me and you should be a source of joy in others. Then circle the word comfort. Me and you should be a source of comfort in others. And then circle the word refreshed. Me and you should be a source of refreshment in others. All three of those things should be, should be evidenced in our life. So it shows us that when we do these things, it, it, the culmination of this prayer is that it's all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Which is why this letter speaks so much, especially for the next two weeks, it speaks so much to this issue of us as family and how we are to, to view that and what that creates in us and how not just that we love each other as family, but how. We love each other as family. That's what we're going to talk about the next two weeks. And, and then it explains why we do the things that we do, the way that we do them. I mean, man, there's a lot of, look, there's a lot of things that are not perfect around here. Boy, believe me, I know them, every one of them. There's, there is. And there's a lot of things that should be better. And should work on more. And there's a lot of things that should be different. But let me tell you something. 
If somebody says, oh, I went to that church and it was all just a big show or a big production, to me, that would be one of the most horrific things I could ever hear. Because one thing that's clear when you come here is we are not trying to impress you. Now, people tell me, I've heard people say, I came and then I left and then I came back. And I said, well, why did you leave and why did you come back? And they go, quite honestly, I left because I felt like, man, I couldn't handle it. And I'm like, that's a compliment. Thank you. We want to be a place that welcomes everybody, but listen, we're, but not on your terms. Because if you come here because you like the production, then you're only going to stay here so long as the dog and pony show keeps on going. Right? So if I just shovel gospel on you every week, then guess what's going to happen? We're going to end up with people who are interested in gospel, right? All right. And so, and you have, to, you have to work to be a production or a show, but you also have to work like heck not to. Because we are children in the same family coming together to worship the same Father share the same Savior while being indwelt by the same Spirit. That's what we are. That's what we are. That's what we are. And you know what? If we're going to be successful at that, we're going to have to get really good at reconciliation. Because there's a 100% guarantee every time somebody joins our fellowship. I used to tell every single person that joined the church, man, the things that come out when I'm not thinking. See, I shouldn't speak off script because this is what happens. I used to tell every person that joined the church, said, listen, let's just get one thing straight. I promise you I'm going to hurt your feelings. And you're going to hurt mine. So can we just agree to know that at some point we're going to have to use some reconciliation tactics to mend the fences? Let's just get that out of the way because it's happening. It's going to happen. So see, if I hurt your feelings, the worst thing you can do is just sit there hurt. Like, come up to me and look me in the eye and say, you hurt my feelings. You'll survive. It'll be okay. Listen, I know it's okay. You hurt my feelings too. We're going to work through it. We're human, but we got the gospel, see? That's the difference. Man, we're God's children. We're in a family. So, man, when your kids hurt your feelings, you don't ship them off. I mean, they're your kids. Well, hello. That's what we do. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're, we're just so grateful to be loved by you. Lord, your word is so amazing and wonderful and profound and beautiful. We need it so bad. God, you've given us this opportunity to just this little vapor of time to be called your children, to live upon this earth, to be surrounded by such opportunity. Lord, 
We have such opportunity. And you're so willing. And I know that your heart's desire is to grow every single one of us to the moon spiritually. So, God, just help us to receive from you that which we need, that we might walk in a way pleasing to you. God, thank you for your mercy, your grace, mostly for Jesus, our beautiful Savior, whose blood knits us together. We're grateful and thankful. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I love you.